0: So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch.
1: $45
2: up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promo for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com.
3: The gentleman of 1870s Washington, D.C. had a need for speed. A favourite pastime among society men was to race their horse-drawn carriages at breakneck pace along 13th Street. It wasn't much fun for local residents and after a lady was knocked down by an out-of-control roadhog, the police took action. William West was one of the cops tasked with cracking down on the speed fiends. One evening, from his perch on the corner of 13th and M Streets, West spotted some carriages careening towards him. He stopped them and arrested the drivers on the spot. This was the moment that West became the first and hitherto only person to have arrested a US president. Often seen recklessly driving his horse and buggy, the 18th president of the United States, Ulysses S. Grant, was one of the speeding drivers. 150 years later, Grant has company. But while Grant was arrested for a misdemeanor, Donald Trump is the first president, sitting or former, ever to be arrested on criminal charges. I'm John Priddo, and this is Checks and Balance from The Economist. Each week, we take one big theme shaping American politics and explore it in depth. Today, is prosecuting Donald Trump a mistake Donald Trump has been charged with 34 counts of falsifying business records. The Manhattan District Attorney's Office alleges that payments were made to suppress stories about Mr. Trump's alleged sexual infidelities before the 2016 presidential election. He denies all the charges, and in a New York courtroom earlier this week, Mr. Trump pleaded not guilty. Republicans have rallied around the former president since news of the indictment broke. His poll numbers are up. He's raising millions of dollars. And even anti-Trump Republicans have expressed some scepticism about the case. For most American politicians, being charged with a crime would be the end of their presidential ambitions. Why not for Donald Trump? With me this week to discuss the details of Donald Trump's indictment and what comes next are Charlotte Howard in New York and Idris Kaloon,
0: somewhere I don't recognize. Idris, where are you? You've got an unfamiliar background there. I am in Oklahoma, the ideal perch to watch all this unfold from.
3: That's a safe distance,
0: maybe. You're down there doing some reporting about teachers, right? Yes, that's right. That's right.
3: And Charlotte, how are you doing? What's news in New York?
4: Well, what's news in New York is this trial. It's been the enormous news story. And all of downtown Manhattan on Tuesday was overtaken largely by reporters, frankly. Everybody was trying to see what exciting thing might happen. And it was a physical reminder, a physical representation of the power of this former president to create an absolute frenzy.
3: Yeah, I should really have said, what else is news in Manhattan? Uh, You're sitting in the middle of the biggest news story in the world, perhaps, at the moment. We should also add, by way of disclaimers at the beginning, that Donald Trump denies all of the charges against him and also denies that he had the affairs that are at the centre of this case for falsifying business records. At his press conference in Mar-a-Lago on Tuesday night after the arraignment, he said, "...the only crime I've committed is to fearlessly defend our nation from those who seek to destroy it." And in a statement following the indictment last week, he called the case against him a witch hunt and political persecution and election interference at the highest level in history." So we have a lot to discuss this week, so let's get into it. We'll begin with the case against Donald Trump, what we know about the charges and what happens next. Idris, you've been doing some reporting on this question.
0: Yeah, and I'll add that he also told Alvin Bragg to indict himself for even bringing the charges against him. So unlikely that that twist happens, but you never know with Trump. So to get a sense of what was going on and what we can expect in the next few months, actually probably years, I spoke to uh, Matthew Galuzzo, uh, who's a former prosecutor in the Manhattan DA's office. Uh, We spoke the day after the arraignment, and he gave me his assessment of the case, now that we have an unsealed indictment, and what to make
2: of it. Well, it's stronger than I expected it to be, I think. You know We still haven't really seen the evidence. We got a statement of facts, which summarizes a lot of it. But we don't really know, you know what these text messages say and what some of these communications say and how much of it has been preserved and recorded. So I'm, I'm, it's a little early to handicap how strong this case is, I think. I will say, though, that it's stronger than I expected because there's more than one incident really alleged in this indictment. We were expecting this to be entirely about Stormy Daniels and that payment about the hush money. That's what had been, you know, whispered about and discussed leading up to the grand jury's indictment. But there's actually more incidents and they have alleged a general scheme to catch and kill unfavorable news stories about Donald Trump. You know, this makes the case significantly stronger in theory uh, because, you know, the main defense that you usually see in a white collar Type of case when you're looking at an executive at the top of a corporation is that his underlings or his employees may have done things illegal, but they did it without his knowledge or his participation or without his awareness. And it's, you know, the intent of that uh, supervisor or that chief is usually the hardest thing, or the awareness is the hardest thing to prove in a white collar case. But, you know, when you have a scheme, when you have multiple incidents, you know, in theory, that becomes much more difficult to make that argument for the defense that he's unaware of or he's not actively participating uh, in these payments because it keeps happening over and over again.
0: I mean, reportedly, the argument they will make is that the business records were falsified in order to violate federal campaign finance law. And a lot of people have questioned whether or not state courts are the right avenue to prosecute that sort of violation. Do you think, as you, obviously it's early days, but when you think about what might form the basis for Trump's defense, will it be an argument like that or an argument about statute of limitations? What avenues would defense have here?
2: It's a good question about the federal campaign finance law, whether or not state law, this particular state law, ever contemplated, you know, a false business entry for the purpose of violating a federal statute. I'm going to give the prosecutor the benefit of the doubt for right now that they did their homework on this issue, that they didn't go into the grand jury without knowing whether that was legally viable under New York state law. As far as statute of limitations is concerned, yeah, generally this case, at first glance, it would be too old under the statute of limitations, which is usually five years for a felony. However, uh, they're going to argue that he was outside of the state, and you can toll the statute of limitations provision by demonstrating that somebody was not re- you know, within the state during the resident relevant time period. And obviously, Mr. Trump was uh, in D.C. for most of that time and partly Mar-a-Lago, I guess, maybe <laughs> some about half of each. But as far as the defense goes, uh, there's a lot of ways to defend this case. I think primarily you're going to be attacking the credibility of the witnesses and Mr. Cohen uh, and Mr. Weisselberg. I think uh, you'll notice in the statement of facts, if you've read it, that there are times when certain communications are specifically referenced as having been made via text message or, you know, in writing. And then there are times when, you know, rather auspiciously, these communications that are described between some of the conspirators uh, are not described as having been via text message. And so, you know, when it's not being described as in an email or text message, you know, it means they're talking on the phone or they're talking in person. And that means those conversations were not recorded. These critical conversations are going to come down to the credibility of the witness, whether or not you believe Mr. Cohen when he says that this conversation happened. And Mr. C- Cohen is, you know, he's gone to prison. He's, he's admittedly lied about this case in a lot of different ways. He's a pretty shaky witness. So you would think that there better be some pretty good corroboration for his story.
0: So can you walk us through just the Basic mechanics of how this case will work. How crazy will jury selection be? Uh, How long might all of this take before we even get to something like a trial? And how long might it take uh, before you even get to something like a resolution?
2: Right. Well, uh, I was a little bit surprised yesterday that the case was adjourned until December. Uh, I would have maybe expected four months. But yeah, they put it into December. And between now and then, the prosecution is supposed to basically share its evidence with the defense. So they're going to be giving them hard drives worth of documents and testimony and recordings and whatever it is that they you know, are required to produce, basically all relevant evidence that they may present to trial. Uh, Donald Trump's lawyers are supposed to make pre-trial motions in writing uh, about the evidence or about the case. Uh, you would expect them to argue that the evidence was not sufficient to sustain these indictments in the grand jury. You might see what's called a severance motion, I think, where they would argue that the three incidents should be tried separately as three different trials you might see that and after those motions are decided then you start talking about picking a trial date and i guess what i'm trying to say is i don't know if it's going to happen before the election next year um it could it could uh it's conceivable but i mean the defense strategy is going to be to delay obviously it always is that's always plan A as a defense attorney is to it as much as you can. So, but picking a jury, you asked that earlier, picking a jury in out would be exceptionally challenging for Mr. Trump. Generally speaking, look, you don't want jurors. You're not allowed to have a juror on a trial who says that their information that they've received you know, from the news media or things they've heard from their friends or social media, that those sorts of things are going to influence them or you know, impact their ability to have an open mind about the evidence in the court. And unfortunately, everybody has heard about this case. Everybody knows him. Everybody's heard about what's going on. Everybody's talking about it. And so everybody will have at least heard something and have formulated an opinion about this case by the time they get you know, randomly selected to possibly be on a jury.
3: Charlotte, Matthew Galluzzo made lots of interesting points there, but two that struck me particularly were we don't know enough yet about the strength of the evidence, right? How much has been recorded, how much is handwritten. That evidence is obviously stronger. And the other point was this is not just about Stormy Daniels. If you read the Statement of Fact, which accompanies the indictments, there's all the stuff about uh, AMI, which is the company that owns National Enquirer, the tabloid, and the various stories which uh, were caught and killed, before the 2016 presidential election. So in a way, the case looks both kind of stronger and weaker than we perhaps thought it was before the indictment came down. What what did you make of the indictment and also the statement of facts that accompanies it?
4: I thought it was interesting, not least for the two reasons that you just outlined. But I continue to have a reaction to this indictment, which is more a bit of a meta-reaction almost, in that it's the first and what I think will be a series of developments from now until November of 2024, where you just have Trump continuously in the public eye, not least because of the fact that he's running for president, but you ha- will have more developments in these different cases, including the case in Georgia, which I think, despite the things that are interesting about this case, remains a more compelling one, the, the Georgia case in which um, he may be charged or Associates may be charged with conspiracy to interfere with the 2020 election, potentially some racketeering charges. And so I remain interested in this case, but more, I think it's kind of a curtain opener for a lot of stuff still to come.
3: Idris, what do you make of the indictment and the, and the statement of facts?
0: I was very excited to open the indictment and see what was there. And, uh, you know, it was, like he said, a bit Spartan and a bit sparse. And the details that we are going to get are probably going to come uh, maybe months from now. Um, the And we're certainly probably a year away from anything like, a, you know, trial with uh, Michael Cohen testifying and that sort of scene playing out, at which point we'll already be deep into the Republican primary. So I was a bit, um, you know, from the stuff that had been reported about the case, I was a bit underwhelmed at the legal theory that they were going to be pursuing. Uh, It it seems like a small potatoes offense to go after a former president for. I know that um, the line is supposed to be that no one is above the law, but there are Clearly, you have to be, I think, 100% sure that you're going to secure a conviction before you try a former president when it's never been done before. From what I'd been reading, it had necessarily convinced me of that. Having read the indictment and the statement of facts, I don't know that I'm that much more convinced uh, about it. So the ultimate utility may be, like Charlotte said, that it prompts other... Uh, investigators with maybe more credible cases like in Georgia, where we all remember Trump saying on tape that he wanted Brad Raffensperger to find the 11,780 votes he needed to win. But all in all, for this case itself, I, uh, you know, remain to be wowed.
4: What do you think of the charges, both of you, against Bragg himself that this is just politically motivated and he's an ambitious DA trying to make his mark? I mean, they were—this office was successful, right, in convicting the Trump Organization of of trying to avoid taxes by giving its executives free perks like cars and apartments, et cetera. What do you both make of him as an individual and— uh, his new national prominence? I mean, do you think the, he stands up to the scrutiny and the charges that various allies of Trump are bringing against him?
3: Well, from what I've read about him, he doesn't seem to be a partisan hack, right? On the other hand, the way that America's legal system works, you have lots of electric prosecutors who stand on party tickets. And so I think the answer to your question, it's sort of impossible to disentangle the extent to which there's any partisan motivation there. I mean, I'm sure he thinks there isn't, right? He thinks that he is just upholding the law and treating everyone equally, but it's impossible to know. And it's very easy for his political opponents or for any Republicans just to paint this as a partisan witch hunt because he is an elected, you know, he's elected as a Democratic prosecutor. That's just how the system works. This is one of the really, really unusual things or features about American justice. And I think in a little bit we're going to get on to making some international comparisons with some other presidents or former presidents who've been indicted. But the way that partisanship just creeps into everything in America makes it different. It makes it hard. I mean, if you rewind a bit, with the Federal Election Commission, which looked into this, is split two-two along partisan lines, two Democrats, two Republicans. The Democrats voted to proceed with the case, the Republicans didn't, with the result that nothing happened. It's really hard, this stuff. But to answer your question head on, it appears to me that you know, Alvin Bragg is not a kind of straightforward partisan hack who has his eye on one day becoming governor of New York. All right, let's leave it there for the moment. We're going to hear about a world leader who's faced 35 criminal cases in a moment. But first, the usual reminder, we'd love it if you would take out a subscription to The Economist. If you're not already a subscriber, then we have a special offer for you, a free 30-day digital subscription. You can go to economist.com slash podcast offer to access that. Silvio Berlusconi got to spend a lot of time with lawyers. He was Italy's Prime Minister for nine years over the course of two decades and faced trial after trial for various charges, from confusing business practices to seedier affairs.
5: There are a lot of cases against Berlusconi. I think the last tally I saw was 35 in total. Many of them relate to his business practices. There are some about bribery, some about false accounting. So there's a whole variety
3: John Pete was the Economist's Europe editor during much of Mr. Berlusconi's long career. The politician labelled all the cases against him witch hunts and maintained his innocence throughout. In 2013, after already being convicted a few times, Mr. Berlusconi promised supporters, looking into your eyes and looking straight into the eyes of my judges, I'm I'm innocent. He was convicted
5: several times, but those convictions were often overturned on appeal. Some of them lapsed because of the statute of limitations, and sometimes Berlusconi and his party actually changed the law, which meant that his convictions were overturned because the law had changed. Only
3: one conviction for false accounting actually stuck, and even for that, he didn't serve time, but because of his age, did a year of community service in a hospice.
1: Io non mollo!
3: Continueremo tutti insieme a combattere questa battaglia di democrazia a decade ago, Mr. Berlusconi promised that he wouldn't give up and would continue to fight. He's done just that. The cases with their number, complexity, and appeals have dragged on. He's fought them all. In February of this year, he was acquitted of bribing witnesses to lie in a case relating to his infamous Bunga Bunga parties. Another similar case is still going on. And Mr Berlusconi hasn't given up politics. After waiting out a ban on running for office, he's now a senator again, nearly 30 years after he was first prime minister. Through it all, his party has stood by him. In 2017, one of his party's senators explained why.
4: Many people still stick with Mr Berlusconi because they don't trust the judges who condemned Silva Berlusconi even the judges said that it was not a good a good verdict and still they see Berlusconi as the one who can uh, represent their needs their hopes and their aspiration for this country perhaps the real
5: cause though is more cynical Berlusconi was in a sort of rather unusual position i mean he invented this party his party Forza Italia Uh, which has changed its name several times, but it was his party and he basically paid for it. And I think that meant it was very difficult for anybody else to say, look, we've had enough of you and you're now being, being investigated by judges all the time.
3: But given how long all these cases have taken and how few convictions have held, the Italian courts have come out of it relatively well. The Italian judicial system
5: did its best to cope with a businessman who actually did do quite a lot of rather dubious things as he built his business empire. And the fact that he was also prime minister did not discourage the magistrates from continuing to, to probe him and prosecute him. And, and I think in the end, people feel that Italy's judicial system has emerged from this, this rather difficult experience with a, in a strengthened position with a, with a better image. <laughs>
3: Well, Idris, Silvio Berlusconi was a long antagonist of The Economist. We said that he was unfit to be prime minister of Italy and he tried to sue us repeatedly. On the day we were recording this, we just got news that Silvio Berlusconi has been taken to hospital in Milan. He's in intensive care. So we, of course, wish The Economist's old antagonist a speedy recovery. But he's not the only president or prime minister of a Western democracy who's been prosecuted, right? America's pretty unusual in not having had or not having had to prosecute either sitting presidents
0: or former ones. Yeah, until now, America has tried to avoid that, so much so that you know Ford pardoned Nixon to some amount of controversy. But all across uh, the world, you see that former leaders are very often investigated and in some cases imprisoned. You see that in France where uh, the former president Nicolas Sarkozy was sentenced as well as his prime minister. You see that in South Korea where I think they've had at least two recent presidents go to jail uh, for corruption charges. But nonetheless, um, America was exceptional in not prosecuting former presidents. And I think nowadays, it looks a lot more like the rest of the world in which democracy is messy and occasionally requires prosecutions of former leaders. Um, This model that Americans have of the president as grand and exalted is, uh, I think, fading.
3: Charlotte, do you think that American presidents, either sitting or former, haven't been prosecuted because there's this reverence towards presidents, as Idris hinted there? Or do you think it's because there hasn't been cause to? I mean, Donald Trump is unusual to put it in a slightly understated term.
4: Yeah, I mean, I think that he's tested America's legal system in all kinds of ways, right? I mean, there are direct instances of whether his own actions are legal, and it's worth dwelling on some of them because the list is so long. I mean, there's this instance in the Stormy Daniels case. There's the question, as we will hear in Georgia, of trying to overturn the results of the 2020 election or meddle medal in it. There was the question of whether a sitting president could profit from spending by foreign diplomats at his hotels. There were two impeachment trials. Uh, The question of whether he pressured the Justice Department to abandon its sentencing recommendation for Roger Stone. I mean, the list goes on, right? And then separately, there are his continuous comments that undermine faith or suggest that the judiciary as a whole, particularly the federal judiciary, is corrupt or not trustworthy. So he's called federal judges a joke or a laughingstock. It's just been this very, very long series of tests, which now I think are starting to enter a new phase because he's coming under direct prosecution again. But I hesitate almost to aggrandize this moment in that way because we have had two impeachment trials. And at each moment, it felt like, oh, this is the time when Trump might get into real legal trouble, and he's managed largely to skate through so far. So I'm not really sure how this will go.
3: Yeah, Idris. I mean, Donald Trump's already said that the judge in the New York case hates him, which is sort of par for the course with him. As Charlotte says, he has he has in the past cast doubt on the neutrality of judges who've been deciding cases he's involved in. Um, but that language is pretty moderate compared with some of the stuff he's used about Alvin Bragg, the Manhattan DA, who he's called an animal and a degenerate psychopath. <laughs> I,
0: what a legal strategy. Um, how much... Uh... How much does this remind you of Berlusconi? Because I know you were you were writing about this uh, back in the day, John. It reminds me a fair bit of Berlusconi in
3: a couple of ways. One way is just how long this will go on for, right? The thing with Berlusconi was the cases just were interminable. And as you pointed out earlier on, Idris, you know, this case, maybe it'll go to trial in December, maybe it'll be delayed a bit after that, and then presumably there will be appeals. That's actually quite speedy by comparison with the Italian justice system, where some of these cases would go on for kind of 10 years and then time out. But generally, in terms of a politician with a large democratic mandate, you know, testing the rule of law, yeah, it's really similar. I mean, there are, I think there are a few differences. Berlusconi was different to Trump in some ways. He owned a very large media company. So it would be a bit like in America if Donald Trump actually owned Fox, sort of literally rather than just metaphorically, and then passed a whole load of laws to advantage his company, his media company against his competitors. That was the sort of thing that Berlusconi uh, got up to a lot in Italy. But yeah, quite similar. Now, ultimately, what we've written in The Economist, which I think is right, is you can't just avoid prosecuting politicians because it's constitutionally awkward. Um, So in a way, what we're seeing is a kind of normalizing of American democracy here, albeit, as you guys, I think, both think, this is a strange case, a rather strange case to pick.
4: Just to jump on that, I think there is this weird tension, though, which some critics have pointed out, and not critics like Trump who call Bragg, what did he call him, an animal or whatever it was. But the more sort of intellectually interesting argument, I think, is this question of whether now local prosecutors across the country will try to claim the national spotlight by bringing charges not just against this president, but potentially against future ones. And you've seen that debate play out in the Supreme Court as well, this question of wanting to confirm that no president is above the law while limiting the power of local and state prosecutors or Congress to use the legal system to attack a political opponent. And I think in that you get to this tension, right, which is that, yes, you want to enforce the rule of law. No, you don't want to have absolute chaos. And that tension has always been there. Back to your original question to me, John. But Trump's actions made this fight one that's hard to avoid, right, because of his actions. They're just so extreme. And I don't think it's entirely resolved. Uh, This is a subject of disagreement among the American people, the legitimacy of these types of cases. I would imagine that in, in some ways this is normalizing America and bringing it in line with other countries, but I also think that there must be consternation among America's allies when they watch this circus, and also fodder for America's critics, right? Those who claim, for instance, in China, who look at America's system and say, you know, that is dysfunctional. You want to see a system that doesn't work well, look to the American model. So I think both, it's important, particularly that some of these cases proceed, the Georgia one in particular. And I think that it's just extremely, extremely messy. And that feels obvious, but it, it it's just a big deal how messy this is going to continue to be.
0: I also don't think that if after January 6th, Trump had really left public life you know had been chucked out of the republican party once and for all had been impeached wasn't trying to be a player um i don't know that this prosecution would be happening you know i think that the taboo would have asserted itself it's the fact that he did try to stay in public life that I think is is driving the impetus. Otherwise, I think the polite refusal would have been there, and um, America, Democrats and Republicans would have just been happy to let him live on Mar-a-Lago in, in solitude, and maybe turn to painting like George Bush did.
4: I was just thinking that. What do you think he would paint? If George Bush paints cats and veterans, what is Donald Trump? I mean, clearly nudes, right? I mean, I think self portraits. Self portraits, right? Maybe that's right.
0: Nude self portraits.
3: <laughs> well, wow. we're just going to leave that thought. Happily, this is not a visual medium. Um, uh, I think, Idris I, <laughs> Idris, I think you're completely right about that. Had Donald Trump said, right, I'm going to retire from politics now and concentrate on property development and playing golf in Mar-a-Lago, I think you're right, this prosecution wouldn't have been brought. But this again gets to what's different about him, right? Nixon, to use that analogy, admitted culpability and resigned. I think one of the things with Donald Trump is he never does, right?
0: Yeah, yeah, that's a very
3: important point as well. OK, we'll be back in a moment to consider what this case means for Donald Trump's political future.
5: Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you.
1: For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300.
5: Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.
3: So Charlotte, so far we've mainly been talking about the merits or demerits of this case and trying to compare America's democracy to those elsewhere. But there's another big question here, which is maybe the one that's hardest to answer, which is what all this means for Donald Trump's you know, future as a possible Republican nominee and even next president of the United States.
4: So I spoke to our Lexington columnist, James Bennett, this week, because whenever there's something big going on, I want to hear what he thinks about it. And we talked on Tuesday, just after Donald Trump had appeared in court,
1: all eyes are on Donald Trump again, you know, that his ability to just suck up the nation's attention, all the lessons the news media said they learned from 2016 about how they weren't going to obsessively cover everything that Donald Trump says and does, and then, you know, guarantees they made that they violated in 2020. Well, today was just, my God, the reductio ad absurdum of... Of Trump obsessive coverage with you know aerial shots from helicopters of his limo making its way down to the courthouse wall. The, these poor anchors, and my heart goes out to them because the live television is hard. You know, they're vamping desperately trying to say something new about this forthcoming indictment that they've already chewed over for the last two weeks, and and at that point they didn't even know what was in it. I mean, it's just it's Here we go again, you know? Here we go again. Donald Trump has a singular power.
4: So, James, we have the indictment. Do you think this is a crucial moment in Trump's bid for re-election? If so, why? Or if not, why not?
1: Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I do think this is an important moment in his bid for re-election. I think it's given him a real boost. It by no means guarantees he's going to be the next president of the United States, but I think it's it's probably, and you know, we should be humble I've always about predicting the future. But it's hard not to believe that this is an, enhances his chances of being president again, rather than diminishing them.
4: Is that because it's just such an easy way to rally support among the Republican base and other Republicans fall away, or why do you think it's so powerfully positive for Trump? Uh,
1: That's what it looks like, um, Charlotte, certainly at at first and even second glance. It so completely um, plays into the story that Donald Trump has told about himself from the very beginning, and I'm talking about going back to 2016 and even before, um, that he is resisting fighting an establishment that will do anything it can to take him down, and he's fighting it on behalf of people who've been screwed by this self-same establishment over and over again. And I think this is what has allowed, you know, this billionaire real estate developer from Queens to um, convince so many Americans that he identifies with them and their struggles. And, you know, we, we saw, I think, we were seeing Donald Trump over the last you know, year or so diminish a bit as a, as a political force as he seemed to be out there simply aggrieved about the 2020 election and um, constantly um, co- complaining about stuff that happened in the past. Well, this, in a sense, um, allows his personal, brings his personal grievances forward into the present moment again, into the present tense, into an ongoing active campaign. And I just think that helps him.
4: I want to ask you about Democrats and how they're playing this, because Republicans, or at least most Republicans, seem to have made the calculation that there's no use attacking Trump on this, at least not for now. And do you see Democrats playing this well? Do you think they're making wise political decisions? Or do you think this is something that's just bad news for them because of all the reasons you outlined?
1: You know, one of the sad realities of polarization in this country is that, you know, the Democrats see this as vindication of the rule of law to the very degree that Republicans see it as the perversion of the rule of law. And I don't expect anything that's coming out of this indictment to change that reality. I I think Democrats have been looking for a legal way to stop Donald Trump. Then they impeached him twice. They weren't able to convict him. Um, and I think a lot of Democrats cling to the possibility that there's going to be a legal way to stop him. And I actually really just think they need to be focused much more on, on the on the politics of stopping Donald Trump. And unfortunately, I think this case enhances um, his politics rather than diminishing them.
4: Well, so my last question for you is is about that thesis, and that it certainly seems to hold for the primaries, right? That. Definitely, this could support him going forward and make him a more powerful contender for the nomination. But what about in the general? I think the received wisdom is that this will be good for him in the primary, might put off voters who are in the middle of the political spectrum. Do you think that that's right or wrong?
1: I honestly can't answer that question today, Charlotte. I know that's a terrible cop-out. I I totally see the logic of that. And also the logic is that if the indictments pile up, if he is indicted in Georgia, if he is indicted at the federal level, running in a general election under such a cloud um, would seem to create just um, a terrible impediment for him. But, you know, we've seen him create a um in 2016 a a narrow pathway for himself through the electoral college despite losing the popular vote and then in 2020 almost repeating that despite losing the popular vote by, by by 7 million and i i don't think you know anybody can be confident that in the end these cases might be very motivating to um, his base. They, they might actually get him some sympathy with um, some swing voters. And we don't know how Joe Biden is going to hold up and perform as a candidate. And we don't know what the economy holds uh, in the next couple of, of um, years. So we have no idea what other variables might work in Donald Trump's favor here. So uh, for all those reasons, I I can't look at these developments and, and by any means feel confident that they rule out a return to the presidency by Donald Trump.
3: So Idris, one message there is that you should take very seriously the possibility that Donald Trump will be not only the next Republican nominee, but could return to the presidency in January 2025. But I guess that was already the case, right? Do you think that this indictment has changed that materially, which is what James thinks? You know, he argues that this is a really important moment. Do you agree? And if so, could you go into that in a bit more detail?
0: I think that it has made the project of defenestrating Donald Trump harder because the ideal route for that to have happened would have been in the Republican primary for Republicans themselves to have rejected him um, and to have alighted on someone who could succeed him who would you know make the party somewhat whole again right now it's fairly divided and it doesn't really know what it thinks on all sorts of things from international relations to trade to health to kind of anything other than opposition to Democrats. Um, the problem with the case is that it certainly makes Donald Trump standing within the Republican Party higher. and makes it harder for anyone to dethrone him. And once you get past the primary, the forces of polarization are so strong that there isn't really the same room for that kind of, of debate and that kind of necessary um, project, and you know, ninety percent, roughly, of people who voted for Mitt Romney in twenty twelve, voted for Donald Trump in twenty sixteen. There are just a lot of people who, um, no matter how much of a cloud Donald Trump is operating under after January sixth, with all of these cases going on, uh, who will think that Joe Biden is still the worst alternative, and they will vote for Donald Trump, and it will be. If it's a Trump Biden rematch, it will definitely be another close race. Um, that much I think we can already say. Uh, so I, I think in that way it does make it harder. Now I, I don't think that it's a boon in the general election. Um, I think you'd have to be overstating the backlash to think that it would be a positive for him. But um, I think it does it does set back the project of creating a crafting a Republicanism a conservatism without Trump um, by at least a few years.
4: So I agree with that, Idris. And one of the things that's been striking to me is that the Republicans who have lent their voices to support him aren't just people like Kevin McCarthy, who, despite being the leader of the House, is kind of a master of supplication. But there's also Nikki Haley, there's Mike Pence, and even Ron DeSantis. All those people ostensibly want to be the Republican presidential nominee. And DeSantis is calling this a weaponization of the legal system. Asa Hutchinson, who I happened to speak with last year, is one person who's not come to the president's defense and is trying to advance a campaign that's really in the model of what I would describe as a traditional Republican, more focused on economic growth. He has an economic record in Arkansas that he'd point to proudly, thinking about job creation and so forth. But he seems like a person from an entirely other era, and this era still belongs to Donald Trump. And you see that reflected in the polling on this that the support for Trump has actually uh, been amplified in the polling in recent weeks as this ish- issue has come to the forefront. There was a reuters Ipsos poll that was conducted after the indictment that said 48 percent of Republicans want Trump to be their nominee. That's up from 44 percent in March. Uh, only 19 percent back to Santos, down from 30 percent in the earlier poll. So, you know. This seems to be something that is very positive for the former president.
3: Yeah, I suppose the Republican primary is a long way away still, right? And so we have to caveat that when we cite the polling numbers. But I agree with both of you here. I mean, thinking about the Republican primary now, there's a sort of DeSantis lane, which is kind of MAGA without the drama, right? I can say to Donald Trump's voters, that he's great, I'm the inheritor of the America First movement, and I offer you all the things that he offered you um, with just perhaps without so much of the, the drama and the soap opera around it. And that strategy really depends on voters being bored of Donald Trump and wanting to move on. And I think the risk with this case is that, as James says, that Donald Trump sucks up all the oxygen and remains top of mind. And then there's another lane in the Republican primary, which is the kind of kamikaze lane at the moment, which is take on Trump directly and say to Republican voters, listen, you don't want this guy. He's the architect of the January 6th riots. You know, he's been indicted on criminal charges. And you could imagine somebody like Chris Christie um, taking that lane, but there's just not much evidence. There never has been much evidence that there's a market for it among Republican primary voters.
0: Yeah, I don't think there's any appetite for head-on confrontation. If Liz Cheney ran uh, for president, I think she would siphon more votes away from Democrats than she would Republicans. So I I don't really think that's a fruitful lane for uh, Republicans to try to occupy. But the difficulty with the other lane is, uh, a lot of it is uh, people who want to be inheritors of the America First movement have to explain why they were formerly so servile, to Donald Trump. Uh, Ron DeSantis is in that camp as well. I mean, if you remember his campaign ads um, back when he was running for governor, I mean, they just uh, are uh, stretch the bounds of, of, of obsequiousness uh, in American politics, which are already fairly broad. They, they have to um, reckon with that, and I don't think anyone has found a satisfactory way of doing so. Even Mike Pence, who Trump supporters wanted to lynch on January 6th really can't bring himself to criticize his former boss. You know, his comments about the prosecution have been that it's a politically motivated witch hunt. Ron DeSantis tried to one-up everyone by saying that uh, he would not comply with an extradition request, which maybe isn't in line with the Constitution itself. But, you know, I think the fundamental question that anyone has is all of these candidates are trying to sell themselves as new Coke, and everyone knows that old Coke is just better. Um, And I think that's the that's the problem they have to deal with. The problem
3: for DeSantis and Co. is they have to basically say that Donald Trump is being martyred politically and that you should vote for them instead. And I just think that's a really hard message to get across. So Idris, I like your framing of old coke being superior to to all uh, all the imitators. I'm sure that's something Trump's campaign strategists will harp on as well, right? Why go for the imitation when you can have the real thing, the real transgressive thing? Okay, before I let you guys go, I have a quiz for you, and I think this is a particularly fine one. In 1994, as he was just beginning to dip his toe into politics, Silvio Berlusconi wrote to The Economist. He disagreed with our characterization of AC Milan, a football team which he owned at the time, as sometimes brilliant. That was most unfair, the mogul wrote, because although it may lose an occasional game or two, its cup-winning record in recent years is unsurpassed. He added that despite The Economist insulting his team, he would remain a subscriber. This week's quiz, which is an affectionate homage to Silvio Berlusconi, is the Who Said It edition. So who said these things? Was it Donald Trump or Silvio Berlusconi? Question one. Who said, only Napoleon did more than I have, but I'm definitely taller? Definitely Berlusconi. Berlusconi. That was Berlusconi talking on a TV talk show in 2006. Berlusconi is a little touchy about his height and often wears heels, whereas Donald Trump is famously tall, of course. Question two. Who said, I'm the Jesus Christ of politics? I put up with everyone. I sacrifice myself for everyone. Berlusconi. It could be both, but it's probably Berlusconi. That was also Berlusconi to supporters in 2006, though Trump did recently tell his supporters that he was their retribution, which feels a little bit messianic in a kind of book of revelation kind of way. Last question. Who said, I'm the most persecuted person in history?
4: Trump. That's Trump.
3: Both of them, in fact. Oh, amazing. Oh, good. Move over, Jesus Christ. So I, I, even more than normally, I fail to keep track of the scores there, but I think you guys did pretty well. Last year, Donald Trump told rallies in Florida and Wisconsin, a friend of mine recently said that I was the most persecuted person in the history of our country. When I thought about it, I actually felt that he may very well be right. <laughs> and in 2009, Berlusconi said, I'm without doubt the person who's been the most persecuted in the entire history of the world and the history of man.
4: It's really amazing the ability of these men of power to spend their whole careers whining, just whining and whining and whining.
3: Yeah, you also wonder that if that sense of persecution is drives them on, right?
4: Yeah, for sure. I mean, a different way to think about it is what they may think about themselves, not as whining, but more of like a rocky underdog type figure, right? But to me, it sounds like a whinge. Uh,
3: and also extreme narcissism.
4: Mm, there's that.
3: To bring us back to um, what James Bennett was talking about, you know, part of Trump's genius, and here we are today talking about him, is his ability to say stuff, that then gets everyone talking about him, right? And he's been doing it for a really, really long time. And it's a hard thing to handle in the media. I mean, we try not to talk about him too much on checks and balance. I don't think we've had an episode focused on him for a while. But at times like this, it's pretty hard to avoid. And you know, who's going to report the latest, incredibly dull thing, you know, Joe Biden has said about jobs retraining when you've got this stuff? Well, that's it for this week. I think, unfortunately, we will have to come back to Donald Trump, his legal troubles, the Republican primary, the other cases against him. But we'll give that a rest for a while. Thank you, Charlotte. Thank you, Idris. Thanks, John. Thank you. This episode was produced by Harriet Noble and Stevie Hertz. Nicolas Vrofast is our sound engineer. If you like the podcast, then please let people know and leave us a rating and a review. You can now explore our whole archive, should you wish to do so, at economist.com slash ChecksPod. And you can get in touch with us via email. We had some really nice emails about the Chicago episode, which I enjoyed reading. So thanks for those. The address is podcasts at economist.com. In the meantime, thanks very much for listening. Stay safe and stay sane. We'll have more checks and balance for you next week.